global value investing through a different lens. Antipodes searches the world for great companies trading at attractive valuations. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes, a global fund manager with offices in Sydney and London. On Good Value, hear discussions about Antipodes' best investment ideas and perspectives on industry and macroeconomic trends. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Over the past few decades, companies like Starbucks, Nike and Adidas have provided investors exposure to China's growing domestic economy. But the dynamics are rapidly shifting. A breed of domestic brands are on the rise and are likely to take market share. On top of this, policy changes will see a shift in China's investment composition. Like the rest of the world, China is going greener. Joining me to discuss China's continued evolution and the companies we think are at the forefront of these shifts is Sunny Banjia. Portfolio Manager of the Antipodes Asia Fund. Hi, Alison. Sunny, you've been covering Asian markets for almost 15 years now. And over that time, the size of the Chinese economy has grown fivefold to more than 15 trillion US dollars. Well, that's absolutely right. We have observed uh, China's emergence as, uh, as a quite a spectacular thing for the global economy. Um, and just, just the rise of millions of people out of uh, poverty. Um, and, and, you know, what's really interesting is witnessing this over 15 years ago, um, there was a very famous Goldman Sachs economist by the name of Jim O'Neill who coined the term brick, BRICS, which was the emergence of a few emerging markets. And China has been able to create a new economy the size of Brazil, Russia, India and South Africa combined plus more. And the composition of the economy has really shifted over time. So, for example, in 2007, 2007 uh, exports as a percentage of GDP peaked at about 35%. They are now sub-20%. And we continue to see China pivoting towards a consumption and services-driven economy. So these are underpinned by some powerful demographic uh, shifts. It's no secret. The population is getting wealthier. Um, and by the end of the de- end of this decade, a significant portion of China will have a con- you know will have a demographic profile more akin to that of a developed world economy, where twenty percent of the population accounts for forty percent of aggregate income. So, despite the negativity we may hear around China, it's an economy where business wants to be, uh, and investors will want to have exposure to this growth. Now, in the past, global equity investors have relied on on the big multinationals to get exposure to China's growth. Do you think this is the right strategy going forward? It's an interesting question. We are definitely seeing a rise in nationalism in China. And with that, we think that domestic brands will take share from global brands. But, you know, if we look at the United States and you look at the exposure towards domestic brands in that market, it's approximately 60 to 70%. Um, where 30 to 40 is foreign. And that's the opposite dynamic in China. So we do think there's share gain, there'll be share gains for domestic homegrown champions in China. And further, the quality of product is equal to foreign peers and there's a strong brand recognition domestically. So we do think these companies continue to take market share. Technology and trade wars has prompted China to continue to focus on the domestic economy. Um, And we just think over time, the United States and China will economically decouple. 
Sunny, before we dive into specific beneficiaries, let's talk some more about this shift in, in demographics as I think this really lays the foundation for how we're thinking about our exposure to China. So I'd really like to get your thoughts on the emergence of these premium or high-powered consumers. Absolutely. If we think back to the year 2000, 70% of Chinese households had an income that was below the United Nations definition of the poverty line. This has dropped closer to 3% today. So this is an enormous feat. And so over the last 20 years, as the nation has industrialized, has become the manufacturer of the world, China has transitioned to a point where its economy can be driven by consumption. So we think the next 10 to 20 years are going to look very different. Today, China has 26 million premium households. So these are households with a income of about 80,000 US dollars per annum. So very developed market-like income buying power. I would think this cohort will grow to 100 million by 2030. So just in context, the aggregate income of these households will rise from 2 trillion US to 8 trillion US. And the consumption is growing faster than the incomes because the savings rate is falling. So not only will see more premium households, <clears throat> the households are getting richer and consumption habits are changing. The final thing to bear in mind is as the incomes rise across China, the pool of low-cost labor that the world has tapped into is also shrinking. So this will have long-term implications for inflation. Now, in a world where investors are concerned about global growth slowing, the opportunity you've painted in China sounds pretty exciting. So take us through some of your best ideas to capture this acceleration in premium consumption. Yeah, absolutely. So we own a company called Ctrip. It's one of the newer additions to the portfolio, which we um, purchased during the COVID sell-off um, last year. It's an online travel agency with flights and hotels, much like Expedia. The company has almost half of the online domestic travel market in China, but also dominates online international travel, where the market share is closer to 70%. Now, the scope for international travel is quite large. To give some perspective, China's GDP per capita is approximately 30% higher than Thailand, yet the, yet the Thais are already traveling much more than the Chinese. So the opportunity is, is quite immense and it even gets better than that. In a normal condition, half of international travel is from China to Macau, Hong Kong and Taiwan. We think this can come back quickly through the opening of travel bubbles. And then the international travel will further increase as the Chinese look to travel to Japan, South Korea and Southeast Asia for holidays. Plus, most international trips are booked through some kind of tour group with only 15% of flights that are booked online. There is plenty of room for online to take market share. Now, the company, in terms of valuations, um, we think are likely to exceed pre-COVID levels in 2023. And we see the business valued at approximately 12 times operating profit, which we think is quite an attractive valuation, uh, quite a margin of safety for what we think has multiple ways to win. Now, I have to ask you about Baiju. Surely this is one of the most direct ways to play the premium consumer when an aged bottle of Mount High can go for as much as 450 US dollars a bottle. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we own a company called Wulungi. It's been it's been a portfolio holding for many many years for us, um, and and it's and it's and it's done a great job in tackling that um, opportunity that you've just outlined. So its premium label uh, retails for approximately 150 US dollars. So it's not as quite as expensive as Maltai. It's not as aged as long, but nonetheless, it is um, a high. Pr- it, it targets the premium consumption um, market of of Baiju and overall alcohol consumption. So Walangi is able to meet the demand from the market today without compromising on its brand, uh, unlike Maltai, which is facing supply side issues. And it's probably worth mentioning our holding in Ping'an here as well. Yeah, sure. Ping'an is a life insurance company that we've had, held for a while. It plays into the increasing household wealth dynamic occurring in China. As you get wealthier, you have a higher desire to protect your wealth and assets. Life insurance is a significantly underpenetrated uh, market in China and competition is relatively benign. The top three players count for about 60% market share and premiums as a percentage of GDP uh, are, are only at around 3%. So that's about half the rate of South Korea. So we think this gap will close over time. Now, premiums or policies, I should say, are generally sold face-to-face. So COVID has acted as a significant handbrake to the growth of Ping'an. And look, this has dragged on for longer than we would have liked. But as we think the economy reopens, uh, consumption spending normalizes, restrictions ease, um, we're currently you know, owning the business at a, at a valuation of about eight times earnings. Okay, what about Chinese retail? The shift to e-commerce in China led that of many parts of the developed world, including the US and Europe. Oh, that's exactly right. Uh, E-commerce was adopted faster in China uh, because of lack of modern retail. And it has been helped by the fact that logistics costs in China are amongst the lowest in the world. And further, this is helped by a very high population density. Everyone talks about Alibaba. It really dominated the retail landscape over the last 10 years. Now, we don't own this stock anymore. So how do you see the landscape evolving over the next decade? You know, will we see new winners emerge? Yeah, that's right. We exited the position at the start of the year and new retail trends are emerging. And there are other competitors that we think are better positioned to capture these trends. The two trends, I think, which would dictate the direction of the retail landscape up the penetration of e-commerce in the lower tier cities of China and the modernization of grocery and fresh food. So what we're watching very closely is the emergence of what is called community group buying in China, which is the modernization of fresh food and pantry staples. Fresh produce and grocery goods are still purchased frequently in China where, where multiple trips are made to the wet markets per week. With community group buying, the customers place orders online uh, and only need to go to the nearby pickup points to collect their goods. So now at the moment, the platforms are still sourcing fresh produce from the local wholesaler, but it's already cutting out several layers of distribution. And as a result, prices have started to fall and the chain is becoming much more efficient. So, and so this is a business model that's still evolving. Oh, that's right. It's it's an evolution. It really took off during 
um, COVID as um, consumers were stuck at home, couldn't visit the wet markets mm. and many wet markets were shut. So the end goal is for the platforms to source directly from farmers and we see um, pickup points consolidating, which will lead to lower delivery costs, increased profitability and an opportunity to expand more into FMCG and other e-commerce categories. So now over the last six to nine months, grocery demand from this channel has exploded. Both Meituan and Pingdodo are investing heavily in warehouses, trucks and systems. Now grocery is estimated to be an approximately two US dollar trillion dollar market. And two companies, Meituan and PDD have moved in quickly. Meituan has approximately 25 market share of community group buying. Um, but that is still less than 1% of total grocery. So we think community group buying can take 10% of grocery market over the next five years, and Matesbon can be around a third of this. It's almost doubling its revenue base from 20 billion in 2020. So Matesbon is a stock that we've had in the portfolios for a while, um, a while now, isn't it, Sunny? It, it dominates food delivery in China, a bit like the Uber Eats of China. So community group buying sounds like a natural extension for this company. So it sounds like it's really transitioning to a delivery platform. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Alison. Um, Meituan dominates food delivery in China with approximately 70% market share. Now, the dominance in um, food delivery has led it to be a, a, quite a successful part of that part of its business. And they understand logistics. They understand know-how of getting goods from point A to point B, which is what they are doing now in community group buying and building the back-end logistics of um, fresh and packaged FMCG. So look, we think this is going to be hard to dislodge as it requires significant amount of investment. Um, and the operating profits of Meituan's traditional food delivery business and travel business this year are being reinvested in the opportunity of community group buying. So let's for roll forward a few years. If community group buying can take around 5% of the grocery market and Meituan can maintain around a third of the market share, Meituan's operating profit could pivot from a loss today to around seven to eight billion US dollars in 2023, as the company reaps the benefits of investment scale uh, and size. Sunny, the, the portfolios have a large exposure to Tencent. Today, Tencent dominates China's online advertising market because WeChat is, is China's largest social and, and messaging platform. But arguably, the competitive landscape is changing here too. The competition for eyeballs is increasing. So why won't Tencent become the next Alibaba? It's a very good question. And uh, it's something we will watch very closely. Um, what is happening in e-commerce is it is a bit different to what's happening in digital advertising. So if you think about China, uh, China is leading the world in e-commerce innovation and evolution. And um, you know one of the one of the issues with Alibaba has been that it has not maintained its logistics um, franchise within its e-commerce business. A bit like mm -hmm. what Amazon has done. And to think about it, what Meituan is doing, it's maintaining its logistics edge. Alibaba outsourced it. 
and now anyone can plug and play. Mm. And guess what? Tencent is also emerging as an e-commerce competitor to Alibaba. Um, so, you know, we think Tencent's um, opportunity in digital advertising still remains very strong. But you are right. New social platforms are emerging. And I'm sure, um, you know, you've probably spent a lot of time on TikTok, Alison, uh, which is the international version of the Chinese short form video um, app called Douyin. So there's Douyin, there's Kuaisha, which is another homegrown competitor. And just to make it more interesting, Tencent has its own short form video uh, app called WeChat Video. So there are a lot of emerging competitors. So WeChat will be competing uh, for uh, eyeballs and time spent against these platforms. And this is something we watch very closely. Um, But unlike e-commerce, penetration of digital advertising is very low and it lags Western markets as a percentage of GDP. So we do think online advertising will grow as we believe the services economy takes off over the next coming decade. The best way to connect to your users will be online and WeChat still remains as the dominant place for advertisers to uh, attract users and advertise to users. So we do think Tencent's in the box seat for this um, coming evolution of growth and digital advertising. Okay, so what you're saying is that uh, the opportunity in online advertising is still very large and and with catch-up relative to the rest of the world. But with retail, e-commerce is already well penetrated in China and, and leading many developed markets. So emerging competition in online advertising is somewhat mitigated by the fact that the segment itself has so much room to grow. Yeah, that's that's a great way to look at it, Alison. Um, you know, where e-commerce is still underpenetrated, as we've discussed, is in fresh and packaged FMCG, where Meituan is tackling that and modernizing retail. But stripping out those other categories, you're right to say that e-commerce in China is one of the most advanced in the world. Um, and the opportunity in uh, digital advertising is still yet is still a large opportunity yet to be tapped. Mm. So with that backdrop in mind, you know, WeChat is a hugely under-monetized asset relative to time spent, where 40% of all time spent goes on WeChat. Um, In terms of the WeChat um, page called WeChat Moments, there is about one ad every 30 posts, which is significantly lower than other posts, other platforms, I should say, um, in the West. And, you know, we've seen the power or face of the Facebook platform. So if we kind of think to China, Tencent not only has the same social platform where it collects a lot of users on data, it collects a lot of data on users. It also collect it also collects data being a very dominant e-wallet. So you think about every time you buy something online or offline you're using your Tencent wallet. And so Tencent's ability to collect data build a user profile that is perhaps one of the best in the world. Uh, So we believe this will prove to be an incredibly valuable asset as Tencent looks to monetize its opportunity in digital advertising. It will have significantly more points and data points on its um, consumers, uh, particularly as we move into this high-end consumption era. So the strength of uh, WeChat and WePay uh, has naturally allowed Tencent to all the f- also further move into e-commerce, where we are seeing brands moving their shop fronts into the WeChat platform. 
And we today see around 2 trillion RMB, so that is approximately 160 billion US dollars of e-commerce now flowing through WeChat. So it's mm-hmm. also moving into the e-commerce um, market space, much to you know Alibaba's um, uh, demise. So it's a dominant platform that is embedded in cha- daily life in China, and the core business is growing at approximately 20% per annum. So if you strip out investments and cash and just value the core Tencent business, not take much upside on e-commerce, we're buying the business on 19 times earnings. So it's fair to say that the way we think about Tencent is similar to the way we think about Facebook and Microsoft. You know, with Facebook and Microsoft, we have two dominant incumbents that are valued at a discount relative to smaller competitors and are cheap relative to their own growth profiles. And we can see the same trends in China with Tencent. Now, Sunny, we have to discuss domestic regulation in China. Uh, You know, it's been in the headlines since the end of last year. It's a focus on anti-competitive behaviour. You know, so the essence being to ensure that uh, the platform companies aren't benefiting at the expense of the consumer. So how do you think about regulation and our portfolio exposures? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. And, you know, the... You know, we, it's something that we've thought about a lot for a long time in, in regards to to China and the technology companies. Um, and so, our, our view has been that technology has been very helpful for the modernization of China and the growth of the the economic miracle that has been China. Uh, and we're seeing it today with the modernization of um, of retail, in in particular, in fresh and packaged FMCG. Um, so w- we do think technology has a very strong role to play in the evolution and growth of China and in pre- enhancement of productivity. So the purpose of the current set of regulation is to prevent anti-competitive behaviour. Uh, it's not designed to stifle the growth of the internet economy or the jo- overall economy, which we, we think is vital to the, su- to the success of the party, that the economy grows um, and 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 businesses do thrive. However, um, we got to remain um, very open minded to this fact that we, ca- you know, the com- the country wants to see anti competitive behavior weeded out. And obviously, that started with Alibaba, and it has moved to some of the other technology giants. Mm-hmm. So, what what this can open up is an opportunity for some of the smaller players to to gain market share where mm-hmm. Alibaba has been incredibly dominant and monopolistic. So we talked about the emergence of Tencent in e-commerce. We think that's an opportunity for Meituan. Uh, and we think that that, that is something that is going to benefit um, um, not just the end consumer, but also create a whole investment opportunity landscape in terms of the Chinese internet businesses. Because we do see opportunities for e-commerce penetration to increase in lower T cities and expand into categories like fresh food. Um, and the opportunities in digital advertising are still remain quite plentiful. And we're early in the monetization of digital advertising. And our forecast assumes that Chinese platform companies will continue to under-monetize relative to their potential as a way of managing the regulatory risk, um, but also a function of the competitive nature of the Chinese internet economy. Mm. And to give our listeners some context, the monetization of Chinese platform companies is some 30 to 50% lower than developed market peers. So we do think they will trade at a discount, but we do think they're quite attractively priced um, at the moment. 
can we spend a bit more time on other changes you're seeing in China policy? You know, with the headlines really focused on domestic regulation and geopolitics, many investors may be overlooking the fact that decarbonisation has become a central pillar of policy in China. Look, that's uh, that's interesting. And, and to touch briefly on geopolitics, Alison, um, we do think this technology rivalry between the United States and China will continue to ebb and flow. And you can do an entire podcast on US-China technology tensions alone. But we do believe that both sides will hold um, its dependence on Taiwan and Korea for the leading edge semiconductor manufacturing, which in a way mitigates the tail risk of an uncontrolled escalation. But having said that, we are watching this risk very closely. We're watching the evolution of the Chinese um, supply chain in semiconductors, and um, you know we want to be we want to keep an open mind on on these risks. Now, in terms of China's decarbonisation goals, I agree the market isn't paying um, much attention to the new policy, the new policies. Uh, like prioritizing the re- reduction of carbon emissions, um, and you know the the weaning off of the inefficient state on enterprises. Um, China has become the most aggressive. China has seen some of the most aggressive EV targets in the world. Um, now we see you know with a target of about twenty percent of vehicle sales being electric by twenty twenty five. And we need to remember that China is the world's largest auto market with around 20 million new car sales per annum. So with a 20% target of EVs will just by definition make China the leader in global EVs. And it could account as much of as much as 40% of global EV sales by 2025. So one of the things which is really interesting um, in, in solar, Allison, is that there's been a very predictable path over the past decade of falling solar costs per annum at about 10 to 15%. Um, and we're at that point, and we've reached that point potentially in 2020 where we've pushed lower to relative to thermal coal um, in terms of new installation mm-hmm. of solar plants versus coal. And the capital markets are starting to wake up to the fact that this is occurring and becoming more willing to fund this. So if we think about this industry, it is moving from an operating cost model to a, um, uh, sorry, moving from a uh, operating cost model to a, uh, you know, return on capital model. Mm. And that could facilitate a big investment boom in renewable build out. So the policy targets that stretch as you know as far as far as the decade is the you know f- uh, quintupling um, of the solar capacity in China from about two hundred gigawatts um, to about one thousand one hundred gigawatts over mm-hmm. the coming decade. So it's a pretty big investment cycle that we that we are potentially entering into as the incremental capacity to add solar. Um, falls and, you know, the productivity enhancements we can get out of that could be quite large. Mm. And the Asia strategy has a position in a company called Longi, which makes solar wafers and assembles these wafers into solar modules, you know, which are then purchased by power producers. That's that's right, Alison. It's an interesting business. Um, it has around, as it has around about 50 to 60% market share um, in, in China and is well positioned for the growth of um, renewable and solar build out 
in China. Now, in terms of our antipodes global portfolios, many of our global decarbonization exposures will benefit as China also reduces emissions. For example, our exposure to copper and aluminium are two raw materials that are key in the electrification of the energy grid where we can see a 4x increase as cars electrify and with solar and wind connected to the grid. Now, Sunny, one final question before we finish up. Unlike the rest of the world, China has begun the process of tightening. How should investors think about this? Yeah, absolutely. It it is um, an interesting dynamic where growth in credit and liquidity have slowed (coughs) in China in, in recent months. And no doubt China is tightening on the margin. From China, this is a normal policy response in (laughs) potentially a quite abnormal world of policy setting. The export part of the Chinese economy is very strong. The domestic consumption is very robust. And naturally, China feels confident to tighten policy on the margin to, one, avoid avoid the perils of overheating, but also to create a buffer so that should the economy weaken in future years, China has the capacity to loosen. Um, Arguably, other parts of the world may not have such uh, dry powder. But we do watch these risks because there is obviously a worry that China may over-tighten at a point where uh, it really impacts domestic growth. So we're watching these events very closely and we're watching the way China behaves uh, on monetary policy and fiscal policy and and and, and we'll keep abreast of, of all these issues. Thanks for your time today, Sunny. Our conversation really highlights the change that's that's underway in China. We have the ongoing shift in the composition of the Chinese economy as the country increasingly pivots to consumption and services with the change in demographics that you've stepped us through. And then we're also seeing a change in the nature of investment, a move away from China as the largest, lowest cost producer to an economy that's prioritising decarbonisation. So we have some exciting times ahead and there'll be opportunities beyond owning the old favourites.